As we come to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, we continue this morning in our series that we've entitled For the Love of God. And from the very beginning, I stated that the love of God is one of the most key, crucial, cornerstone characteristics of the God in whom we serve. I don't believe that the love of God can be emphasized enough within our churches across America. I'm talking about the love that God shows us, the biblical love that God demonstrates to us. I, be, I believe that the love of God is transformational, that it never leaves anyone in the same place that it found them, that it changes them radically, drastically for the purposes of God. The title of my message this morning is Love Works in Purpose, and the meaning of that title is this, that there will come a time in your walk with the Lord, your relationship with God, that you will be confronted either within your own heart or within the circumstances in which you face that will cause you to question or to doubt God's love for you. And it is at that moment that you begin to doubt or question that a vulnerability sets in. And that vulnerability can destabilize you in your relationship with God. It is this vulnerability that I choose to eliminate this morning through the text in which we have selected. By helping you understand each and every circumstance that you face to help you understand each and every thought of your heart and mind and bring it into the proper perspective of the Word of God. To allow you to weather the storms of life in security rather than moving to a position of insecurity and stumbling, therefore, in that insecurity. I guarantee you that at one time or another, this will occur in your life. I don't care how many years you've been a Christian. I don't care how mature you believe you are as a Christian. This will occur in your life at one time or another. You will be brought face to face with either the questioning or the doubting of God's love towards you due to something that is within your mind and heart or due to the circumstances that you face in life. It is a conclusion that we draw often incorrectly based upon either one of those two. It is determining truth not based on fact, but based on the pragmatic experience in which we are having. And therefore, we make a wrong uh, judgment, we draw a wrong conclusion concerning God, and once we do that, we then place ourselves in a very, very a critical position before God. And as I have stated, we often find ourselves destabilized. And we find ourselves in a place of vulnerability where we then begin to truly wonder, does God still love us? As we come to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, Of course, jumping into a portion of Scripture in one particular chapter uh, needs to be qualified by the context in which we find these verses. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul is making the argument that the individual is justified before God by faith and faith alone. 
But as he comes to the eighth chapter, he begins to then uh, address an anticipated question from his readers. That question is this, that if I proceed in my relationship with God through Jesus Christ by faith alone, can I be guaranteed that by faith alone I not only will be justified, but have the assurance of the fullness of my salvation that one day I will be in heaven with the Lord standing before him in that glorified state that has been promised to me. If I walk by faith alone, can I have that assurance? That is the underlying question that Paul then begins to address as he moves into chapter 8 of the book of Romans. That assurance to allow you to know for sure that the work that God has begun in you, he will be faithful to complete in you. And though it is offered to us by the grace of God, it is received by us by the faith in which we put within him, the trust that we put within him. And so his readers are saying, is that sufficient? Will that carry me to the very end? And so he begins Romans chapter 8 with this verse, a verse that I think many of you are fully uh, accustomed to or uh, uh, familiar with. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is in the most emphatic terms within the Greek language. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This struggles, I'm, I'm sorry, this addresses the internal struggle that an individual would have if they find themselves personally condemned before God and therefore wondering if the salvation process will actually be completed in their life. Will I reach heaven? Will I reach that stage of eternal life? Will I reach that point of being glorified by God? if I feel in my heart that I am condemned before him. So Paul alleviates that internal condemnation. He says, now there is no condemnation. How much condemnation is there, folks? None. None. Because we are in Christ Jesus. Whatever condemnation that we were under has been lifted from us due to the fact of the price in which Jesus Christ paid upon the cross for us, and therefore there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's a conditional promise, isn't it? You must be in Christ. It is for the believer. And this would address the internal struggles that one would have that would then cause them to question the uh, fruition or the, uh, the, the full effect of the salvation of God upon us. But then he moves through and he talks about the Spirit's role within all of this assurance and the Spirit coming alongside of us to help us in our weaknesses. And then he comes to verse 18 where he then talks about the suffering in which we experience personally in and, in and out our Christian life. And he writes in verse 18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or to us, I should say. Now Paul's dealing with the external. 
the circumstances that are around us that are bringing these particular believers to a point of suffering, he's saying no matter what you're going through at this moment, it's not going to nearly compare to the glory in which you're going to have with Christ for all eternity. Dealing with the uncertainties of internal issues, such as feeling condemned before God. We've all been there at one time or another. You're getting up on a Sunday morning to come to church, and all of a sudden you have that thought in your mind or in your heart, you know, you're a hypocrite. You, look at what you did this week. God wants nothing to do with you. Once you get to that church, you're just going to bring the whole church down. As soon as you walk in, God's going to judge the entire church with fire and brimstone. Just stay home. You call yourself a Christian? Give me a break. Hitler was a better Christian than you were. The condemnation that Satan reels against us, Paul is saying, listen, don't listen to it. For Jesus Christ has released you from that condemnation because of the sacrifice and the resurrection that he has made on your behalf. God never uses condemnation in a person's life to change them into the image of God. Condemnation is not a tool that God uses. He doesn't use condemnation, for condemnation drives you from his presence. The tool in which God uses is conviction. He convicts the heart of the individual, drawing them, not uh, expelling them, but drawing them closer to him in hopes that they repent of their sin. Condemnation will always uh, drive us from God, where conviction will always draw us to God. And when it comes to the external circumstances of our lives, it is absolutely imperative that we do not draw these overreaching conclusions based upon the momentary, temporary uh, circumstances in which I find myself in. That's an easy way, or an easy man's way to truth. I was with a group of individuals a year or so ago, and we were around a table at a dinner that uh, one of our family members was hosting, and we were talking about truth and the lie. I don't know what it is about me, but it seems like wherever I go, I get into a conversation about God. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor and people want to talk about God. And in my conversation with these individuals, I discovered that they have no bearing or basis in which to determine what is true or what is false. So I asked them directly, how do you determine what is true? from what is false. And in each and every occasion, they gave me an answer that is based on pragmatism rather than on factual evidence. Basically, how something plays out in their own personal life will then for them uh, declare truth to them, and therefore they take that as being true over false. For example... If you were to ask me what type of car you should buy, I would say, well, you know, Toyotas have had a very good track record of reliability and longevity. But maybe you had the one Toyota that was an absolute lemon. 
And you say, you know what? No, no, Toyotas are the worst cars ever based upon your one personal experience, based upon the one car in which you owned. And even though there's a mountain of evidence to demonstrate that Toyotas can be one of the best cars to purchase, your personal experience is determining truth to you rather than the evidence in which is given. We do this all the time. This is a pragmatic means by determining truth. It doesn't make it true, it just makes it a truth to you. And so often our circumstances we interpret in the exact same way. And so Paul wants to expel this. He wants to uh, remove this thinking from the believer's mind and heart. And so that leads us to the verses in which we will look at today as he's concluding this thought. He is writing to them, helping them to understand that the work that God has begun in them, he will be faithful to accomplish and to complete in them regardless of their circumstances, regardless of what their own heart tells them. God is faithful. When the Jewish person considers the understanding of salvation, to them and to the New Testament uh, early church, salvation is much greater than simply just going to heaven. For them, salvation was the restoration of a fallen world, the restoration of the fallen individual back into the image that God originally created them within. When God created man, he said, I've created man in my image. And it was good. And he did so that he could therefore have a relationship with the man in which he created. And of course, woman also. But when we fell and the sin entered into our lives, that image became distorted and we became separated from God requiring a uh, means by which we once again can be reconciled to God. We were distant from God. We became more animalistic and began to resemble, uh, resemble animals rather than resembling God and His standard of morality. So salvation for the individual is not just going to heaven, but enjoying a restored Uh, existence before God in perfection. But not only we as individuals, but the whole world. And that's what Paul brings forward in Romans chapter 8. That's what God's doing. And so Paul wanted his readers to know that they could have this assurance that the work that God started in them, he is faithful to complete that God is going to glorify those who are His. And the manner in which that process is unveiled to us is by faith and faith alone. And so we come to the 28th verse of chapter 8, looking forward to the future glory in which we will once occupy and one day occupy And he says here, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
The word know there in the Greek is a Greek word for a reflective knowledge. And what do I mean by a reflective knowledge? It's a knowledge, number one, that we can be certain of, and it's reflected in the, in the regards of that each and every time that I am faced with a circumstance, I ought to remember this certainty. That's what he is saying. That's why it's reflective. That each and every time I find myself in a position where I'm internally condemning myself or that my circumstance would begin to dictate something to me incorrectly about God, I am to reflect upon this knowledge that I can be certain of. That's what he means here by we know this reflective knowledge that we can turn to in moments of need. That for those who love God, this is speaking of the believer, and the only reason we love God is because He first loved us. For those who love God, we know for certain that in each and every circumstance that we find ourselves that would challenge this idea that all things work together for good. Now, it doesn't say some things. It says all things. The Greek word there is everything in its entirety. Excuse me. Everything in its entirety. As a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what I face. Everything is working together for good within my life. Working together means a collaborative effort, God using the circumstances in which I find myself to bring about good in my life. And after one becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, we can be certain that everything that's happening within our life, God is using for good. Now, we have to clarify what that good is, and we will do so in just a minute. But up until this point, let us understand, even though the experience that I'm experiencing may not be good, the result of that experience will be good for me. As one wrote, he said, sometimes when we are suffering heartbreak, tragedy or disappointment, frustration and bereavement, we wonder what good can come out of it. But the following verse gives the answer. Whatever God permits to come into our lives is designed to conform us into the image of His Son. The tense in the Greek is that everything is working together continuously to bring us to this point of good. And one wrote... As he stated, even the tragic circumstances that believers undergo are part of his loving design for their lives. For them, he brings good, that which is morally, tangibly, and beneficial to the individual. So everything that I go through through life, God is working in me for good. So therefore, if I look at my circumstances through those lenses, in that light... I should not conclude that God doesn't love me any longer because I'm going through this horrific period of time, that I'm experiencing this trial, trouble, or tribulation. 
but rather I should conclude God does love me because whatever is happening here right now, though I may not understand it at the moment, I will one day and I am guaranteed this fact that it is working for my good. That's what he is saying. He's asking us to change our perspective upon our circumstances. How often when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances do we ask God, oh, alleviate me from these, the weight of these difficult circumstances. Oh, just, just take them away, Lord, and, and just uh, remove them from my life. Maybe we should pray this. Lord, what can I learn from this? Lord, what are you doing in my life? What do you want me to uh, gain from this experience, Lord? How shall I be changed by your loving hand at this moment? Every circumstance, either good or bad, are working together in harmony with God to bring us to that place of good, to that place where he calls the sanctification into the image of Jesus Christ. When you go through a blessing, a time of blessing, a good period, you should allow that good to melt your heart and saying, oh God, you're so good to me. I I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this blessing. Thank you, Lord, so much for it. Let me remember this blessing the next time I'm faced with challenge. Let that good experience melt your heart gently and allow your heart to further conform into the image of Jesus Christ. When it comes to the more difficult challenges that you may face as an individual, instead of God simply just shaping the clay smoothly through the blessings and through the uh, good experiences of life, sometimes the clay gets a little hard in areas, doesn't it? And he can't finish the work in which he started unless he gets uh, rid of that area that's hardened in front of him. So as he's molding you into the shape of his son and the blessings are coming through the gentle touch of the Lord's hands and so forth and and you're allowing those blessings to move you and to mold you into the shape of the image of his son and he's getting his work in it and you go, oh, oh, that's a really rough area right there. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. Peter, I need the hammer and chisel. Those are the time it hurts, right? Those are the time where he has to bring the difficult circumstances in to deal with the hardness of our heart towards him, to shape us and to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's those times that we often cry uncle and determine that God no longer loves us. But the same God who is gently molding you through the blessings is the same God who loves you equally that is shaping you through the difficulties, circumstances of life. The same hands. Just using different tools. I have a love-hate relationship with my dentist. I don't know how else to say it. I can't imagine as I'm driving to the dentist, even getting cleanings, I mean, I I feel like uh, that's torture in and of itself, cruel and unusual punishment. I once went to my dentist and the hygienist said as she was cleaning my teeth, she said, 
oh, your teeth look so good. She goes, the last set of teeth you know, looked so bad. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah, it was on a cocker spaniel. She cleans dogs' teeth also. I felt so reassured after that. There are other times that I had to go to the dentist to get some corrective work done, a small filling or such. And I'm thinking to myself, the dentist is going to give me an injection, numb the whole side of my face. He's going to take a drill and he's going to start drilling into my tooth, creating a hole. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? You think about it, you're like, and I'm paying this man for this, right? But then he fills the hole and the pain is relieved. I had a cracked tooth once and I couldn't believe the pain that it was causing me. And he drilled and drilled and drilled and, you know, drilled and then, you know, got on top of me with two hands, was pushing the drill down. And, but when I left, the pain was gone. God often has to work in our lives in that way. Surgery is the same way. You know, uh, yes, doctor, please take a knife to me, cut me open, gut me like a fish there on the table. Take out things <laughs> that aren't needed or are causing me difficulty but yet you feel better, right? The hand of God working in our lives in such a way is just like that. As his hands move and shape us and mold us, he often, therefore, has to come to those areas of our life where extra attention is needed and the chipping away must begin before that area can be corrected. And those are the difficulties that often question, or we question And then we conclude that God no longer loves us. But Paul says here very clearly, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God does have a plan for each and every one of us. God did not simply save you to simply ordain his shelf with individuals that he then could uh, receive glorification from. There's a plan and a purpose to each one of your lives. And God wants to reveal that plan to you. And that love is not only working in you, but will work through you for the purposes of the furtherance of the kingdom of God. For he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the definition of the word good that is found in verse 28. The work that God is doing in us and through us, the circumstances in which he is allowing into our lives, the good in which he is bringing about is the fact that he is once again bringing us back to that image of perfection, the same perfection in which his only begotten son carried the 33 years that he lived on this earth. Now, that perfection will not be realized until we are in heaven with the Lord, but you and I are a work in progress, and this is why it's so necessary that we continuously give grace to one another each and every day. Because we are going to fail, we are going to fall, we are going to stumble, we are going to doubt, we are going to question. We're going to say the wrong things at the wrong time. We're going to do the wrong things at the wrong time. It's because we are a work in process. And that work is trying to be frustrated each and every day by the, the enemy himself. For Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. 
all that God is doing. He is seeking like a, a roaring lion those in whom he may destroy. Let us be aware of this fact. Let us understand this. And this is why grace must be given to each and every one of us. This is why we should meet each other with forgiveness, meet each other with grace, meet each other with compassion and love for one another because we're all works in progress. We haven't gotten there yet. And if that wasn't enough, then on top of it, we have the spirit warring against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Sometimes we don't know what way is up. But God said, through it all, I am working. And here he says, from the very foundations of the world, before the world was even created, I knew you, I predestined you to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The salvation isn't just simply a ticket to enter into the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. The salvation is bringing us back to that perfected state that we, want, that we one time abandoned due to our sin. And Paul here is saying that God is assuring us that the work that he has started in us, he will be faithful to complete. Each and every person who is saved in Christ will be perfected in Christ. As he goes on to say in verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. Notice this. The predestined position, the predetermined position is the assurance of being conformed into the image of the Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the one who made all of this possible, is now allowing this possibility to come to our lives. That Jesus Christ is the forerunner of all things. And therefore, because he was resurrected on the third day, so shall you and I be confident of the work that God is doing within us. And concluding in verse 30, and those in whom he predestined, he called. Those in whom he called, excuse me, he also justified. And those in whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. So the question is, is that if God has predestined you, if God has called you, if God has justified you in Christ Jesus, what is the, what is the assurance that you can have that one day you will be glorified in him? A hundred percent, without question and without denial. This is a reality that cannot be shaken by our mere circumstances that we experience throughout our life. That the work that God has begun in you is the work in which he will complete in you. And notice that it says here very clearly that it was he who predestined. It was he who called. It was he who justified. And who's going to glorify us? He will. It's a work of God in our life. As one wrote, Dr. William MacDonald, he said, The point is not, of course, that we will ever have the attributes of deity or even that we will have Christ's facial resemblance, but that we will be morally like him, absolutely free from sin and death, and we will have glorified bodies like his for all eternity. 
That is the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. To the original reader, as he struggled with the idea, is my faith sufficient to see me to the very end? Paul responds and states, yes, it is due to the fact that it is God working these things out. It is God bringing these things to pass. Not you, God. And that in and of itself is something in which we can just simply say, Hallelujah. I love what Tom Constable wrote. I'd like to read this to you before we conclude. He says, Predestined means that God determined the destiny of the elect before the creation of the world. That destiny is specifically conformity to Jesus Christ's image. Much more than just deliverance from sin and death, God accomplished this goal partially through the believer in justification. He is presently accomplishing it partially through the progress of sanctification. And he will accomplish it completely throughout our glorification. What God started in you, he is faithful to accomplish. Three things I'd like to give you to take away from our time together this morning. Number one, this is so important. The Bible doesn't specifically address every single situation that a believer in Jesus Christ can find themselves within. But what the Bible does give for us are principles that we can stand on when we find ourselves in whatever circumstance that we find ourselves. And as a result, God has given us what we, have, what we need to stand securely in those times in which difficulties arise within our life. We simply need to apply the truth that God has given us at the time in which we are being challenged. At that time we are going through difficulty, at that time that we are going through struggles, at that time that we are uh, wrestling with doubt and questioning God's love. It's so important that we don't run into that emotional state like the little boy from home alone as he's running around the house. But we fall back on the truths in which God has given us. We shall never leave. We should never leave that which we know to be true for that which we don't know to be true. And so whatever I face, good or bad, difficult or indifferent, all things are working together. That's the truth that I then fall back upon. Secondly, we need to have our sight adjusted as believers here in America. We all need corrective lenses. Trust me, as one who has worn glasses since eighth grade and they've only gotten thicker since, I went to progressive lenses and I couldn't even walk out of the store because I was like, holy cow, this is supposed to be helpful. But I've noticed that Christians need a focal adjustment often. They need corrective lenses. We need to get our eyes off the temporary and on to the eternal. We need to understand that our temporal uh, comfort is not nearly as concerning to God as our eternal glory. 
We need to understand that you and I are works in progress. And though for the moment I want everything to work smoothly and comfortably and I want everything to fall in line and so forth, that's often not the case and cannot be the case if God is going to complete the work that he started within us. Now often I don't understand why I go through the difficulties in which I do. But I will tell you, now that I've been a Christian for 30-some years, I do realize that those things that I went through initially that I didn't understand, now I understand them. Now I see what God was doing. Now I understand that God was using these things for a very specific purpose in my life. And they did benefit me for the glory of God. They did work in my life. They did change me from the inside out. And so that I I may not have appreciated them at the moment and even resisted the process of the hammer and chisel, now 30 years later, I get it, God. Now I know what you were doing and you were faithful even when I was faithless. You were strong even when I was weak. We need to look at the long term rather than continuously being consumed by the short-term sight in which we are often uh, living our lives by. Short-term sight will never give you the long-term picture. There are those who drive, and when they drive at night, they turn the headlights of their car on. And you will notice this often, that some headlights only really extend five, six feet out in front of the car. I know you may, you may have noticed that. You rented a car, drove someone else's car. You're like, wow, there's not a very long throw on those lights. I, I, I can only see a few feet in front of me. There are other cars that have a much longer throw. That's the kind of car I like to drive. I don't want to just know what's five or six feet in front of me. I want to know what's coming up down the road in front of me. Because it might be clear five or six feet in front of me, but the skunk is 10 feet in front of me. And I'll be out there hosing down my car until two in the morning or the deer or whatever else may be in the center of the road. But many of the new cars are now extending the throw of the headlights much farther and individuals are somewhat taken back by that. Because the throw of their headlights, they've been accustomed to only seeing just what's shortly in front of their car. We as believers need to look at the long term. We need to look at what God's doing in the overall, not just at the moment. And when God denies us something, it's probably because he knows it's not the very best for us. And number three, let us understand that as we are works in progress, we can look back at our walk with the Lord and oftentimes in hindsight gain understanding and realize that he was working at that moment in a moment that i completely doubted it in a moment that i thought that i was all alone it was clear that god was with me the entire time don't just look back and rejoice over those moments learn from them So then when you find yourself in the next moment of difficulty that seems even greater than the last one, remember God has been faithful in the past and God will be faithful today. And as God was working all things together for good in the past, he's working all things together for good in the present. And as a result, you will begin to grow 
and mature in your Christian life. Remember, never leave what you know to be true for that that you know to be false. Stand on the truth in which God has given you to weather the storm at that moment in time, that difficulty in life. I pray that today, after our time together, you no longer look at your uh, circumstances as obstacles in, in, in the way of what God is doing in your life, but opportunities to learn and to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. And therefore, no longer determining as I go through difficult circumstances, whatever they may look like, whatever, however they may manifest themselves, and determine that for some reason God no longer loves me. But God has allowed all these things in your life because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you.